My name is Adam, and I want to welcome you to episode six of the Birding Life podcast. This is the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. Wherever you are listening in the world, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Today's guest is Mark Anderson, the CEO of BirdLife South Africa, one of South Africa's leading conservation organizations. Under Mark's strong leadership, the organization has grown in many ways from strength to strength. In today's episode, we'll hear about Mark's roots and how he got into birding, projects that this organization is involved in, news and information about Flock to Marion 2021, and a whole lot more to whet your birding appetite. This is the last week to enter the draw to win a copy of Fancy's Kids Book, a full field guide for kids. So stay tuned to see how you can win a copy of this great book. As always, this podcast is proudly associated with BirdLife Port Natal, a bird club that runs in the greater Etiquini area in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. Before we chat to Mark, I am pleased once again to chat to Nicolette Forbes, the chair of the club. So welcome Nicolette to the show. It's always good to have a chat to you. How are you doing? Hi Adam, I'm doing very well in lockdown, thank you, and I hope you are as well. I'm doing really good, being good to be out and get a little bit of walking around and birding out on the streets. That's been good. The guest in today's episode is Mark Anderson from BirdLife South Africa. We know that BirdLife South Africa is doing amazing work in terms of bird conservation. Can you explain a little bit of how BirdLife Port Natal relates with BirdLife South Africa? Quite sure Mark Anderson will cover quite what BirdLife South Africa's role is. But if you look at it in terms of a, a hierarchy, BirdLife International is obviously the international organization that brings a whole lot of national groupings together, things like the RSPB in the United Kingdom and BirdLife South Africa in our case. And the local clubs, some of them, not all of them are bird clubs, but some of them are affiliated with BirdLife South Africa and BirdLife Port Natal happens to be one of them. So although we were established in Durban in 1949 as the Natal Bird Club, at that stage there was no BirdLife South Africa per se. And once BirdLife South Africa was formed, we became one of the local clubs that affiliated with BirdLife South Africa. So we provide the on-the-ground activities that relate to birding and birdwatching within KwaZulu-Natal. So we provide walks, we provide talks, and we interact with the members on a much more regular basis than, say, the national society BirdLife South Africa will do, although BirdLife South Africa does stay in touch via newsletters and, and various other platforms. So we've been speaking a lot over the last couple of episodes about joining a local bird club and very specifically from the perspective of this podcast being a part of BirdLife Port Natal. But how is BirdLife Port Natal being able to contribute to BirdLife South Africa's conservation projects? Well, one of our missions of BirdLife Port Natal is to promote the enjoyment, the understanding, the study and the conservation of birds and the, the general environment in Etiquini and KwaZulu-Natal. And in doing that, we support BirdLife South Africa, who has the same sort of objectives, but countrywide. So at a local level, we support those same goals. So by coordinating a variety of activities for club members, we further and encourage 
the enjoyment and understanding of birds and education and outreach. We also hopefully contribute in terms of bringing members to BirdLife South Africa. So because somebody is a member of BirdLife Port Natal, they are automatically affiliated with BirdLife South Africa, and that contributes to BirdLife South Africa's headcount, which is an important aspect in terms of being able to change legislation or policies to influence legislation and decisions that are being made around the development of various areas and how they affect or might impact upon birds. So through a local influence, we are providing a sort of scale up through to BirdLife South Africa. We also contribute directly to some of the conservation projects. And as you know, this past year, we have managed to donate to at least two of the projects that BirdLife South Africa is involved in and indirectly a third one. But the Southern Banded Snake Eagle project is one that's quite close to my heart because I did a lot of work in the Isamangaliso Wetland Park area for 10 years. And that is a bird from that area. And we have managed to donate a substantial sum of money to that program and hope to be involved with the association going forward, as well as the Mouse Green Marion project, which BirdLife South Africa is involved in with a number of other role players. So Nicolette, from what it sounds like, there is great value in being part of a local club. And it really works in two directions because by being a member, you get access to a whole membership of people with varying levels of experience of birding. So people that are, that are there to help you when you go out birding or if you get a, a photograph of a bird and you want to check it and to help you with identification and all the tips and tricks. Also, once we are out of lockdown and able to go walking again, there is the security of being able to walk with a group of people that are like-minded and doing the same sort of things. And they also know the different areas for searching out some of our bird specials and bird diversity within our local areas. And then in the other direction, just by being a member, even if you don't participate in any of those things, just by being a member, you, can, you know that you are helping the club to submit to conservation projects from a financial perspective but also your presence in the club is a vote for conservation and a vote for the national body BirdLife South Africa. So Nicolette in case someone is listening for the first time today how would someone join BirdLife Port Natal? It's a very easy system all you have to do is send an email and I think you put the email address up afterwards it's through to membership at blpn.org or there's a, a Gmail address, blpn.members at gmail.com. And you can just ask, say you want to become a member. It's as simple as that. Or you can go and have a look at our website, blpn.org. And there is a special section on membership, which has the forms for download with a, a quick click on a, a very small PDF file. So Nicolette, once again, thanks for your time. Thanks for being a part of the show. I'll be sure to put all the links into the comments section, but thanks for being a part of the show. It's always good to have a chat and look forward to seeing you soon also. Thanks, Adam. And thank you for allowing us to profile the club and hopefully we will encourage people to join up. Things like this are dying around the country and around the world and they are important parts of civic society, which have a, a great benefit at the end of the day. So welcome to the show, Mark. And to kick off, 
where did this passion for conservation and in particular bird conservation begin? I was very fortunate um, to be raised in Pretoria and to have a grandfather, uh, Opa as we called him, who was very interested in the bush. And he had a few game farms in, which is now the Limpopo province. And over the years, as a teenager, I used to visit these farms with him. We spent time watching birds and bathing in the river and eating berries. I suppose it was those early years that got me very interested in birds and in conservation. I really owe a lot to him. Which area did you do a lot of this in? So the one farm was up on the Limpopo River, uh, not far from all days. And the other property was in the Wachubuskloof. And then later he bought a property in the Lowfeld near Hoodspray. He needed a volunteer often to go with him on the weekend trips, which was generally to pay laborers wages. And I, being the old, eldest grandchild, was always the first to volunteer. What was so nice spending time with him is that he was very inquisitive. And if he didn't know the bird that we saw, tree that we would trying to identify, we'd go back and consult books, pages through books, and we'd uh, try and find the answer, which was yeah, really good. And he was a very passionate conservationist as well. So I really owe a lot to, to my grandfather for introducing me to the environment and to birds. Just an interesting side note, which bird book were you guys using at that time? Those were the early editions of Roberts, <laughs> so a long time ago. Illustrations weren't necessarily up to scratch. They don't meet the illustrations that we have in the new Roberts Field Guide or Sassel or Newman's. That was really, really a long time ago. Um, it was quite a, you know, an amazing experience, particularly in the mornings when we'd sit in, outside into this big tree. I think it was a, a Helbud Buen, and we'd have breakfast, coffee and rusks, and the black-headed oriole would come and call, and he'd call it in. And we'd listened very carefully to all the birds that were calling orange-breasted bushrikes and others and slowly got to know the names of some of the birds. And I was really a teenager at that stage. It was really these trips that ignited my interest and ultimately my passion in birds and bird conservation. What an amazing upbringing. So most people know you as the CEO of BirdLife South Africa, but when you are away from the office, who is Mark Anderson? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my, my problem, Adam, is that one can't really distinguish between my work time and my private time because I'm very fortunate to have pursued my hobby as a career and I spend most of my time working. It's really an absolute pleasure to have a job like I do. But I do enjoy family time. I'm very privileged to be married to Tanya, who shares my passion for the environment. She's a botanist. And I do enjoy spending time with my children. Fortunately, they don't live in Johannesburg. My son lives in Amsterdam and my daughter lives in Cape Town. But I do spend time with them. I love walking. We walk a lot during lockdown. Well, since we were allowed to walk from 1st of May, we've been walking an hour and a half a day. Also, my passion is bird photography, so I spend a lot of time behind my camera. But if I had my way, I'd probably spend more time in, in the bush. I get away every weekend and just walk around the felt, binoculars around my neck, maybe a backpack with a bottle of water and an orange and an apple, just explore the environment. And I suppose it is really fortunate to be married to Tanya because she's incredibly knowledgeable about the bush, but also she has a very inquisitive mind. So one has to be prepared for a walk with her because it's going to be a long and slow walk at times because we'd be looking in crevices and looking under rocks and trying to identify herbs and plants and that we find as we sort of amble through the bush. Spending time outdoors is really what I like doing. 
I'm also interested in sport. Um, so I suppose a typical male South African, I do watch sport on television, particularly cricket, but also a few other sports, golf, athletics, sailing, rugby occasionally, sevens rugby in particular. We do watch quite a few movies on, on television. We also movie goers. So there's a good show, cinema, we would, you know, Friday night go and, uh, go and watch a movie. So I do a lot of stuff. Um, and I suppose the things that I miss out on um, is sleep. <laughs> I don't sleep as much as I should. I do spend a lot of time pursuing my, my career and my hobbies. And what are some of your favorite movies? I watch anything, really. I suppose I do enjoy thrillers, um, again, being a... <laughs> A real South African man, but anything that's got a good review, we'll watch. There's a whole host of things. We've got Netflix now. So during the, the lockdown, we've been watching quite a few movies and a few series. When we're working at night and sitting in the lounge, we sometimes just have wildlife documentaries going in the background. There's just some amazing wildlife documentaries. I find that that's something one can quite easily do. I may be working on you know, an urgent report or reading some of our, my colleagues' reports just to have a David Attenborough documentary going in the background and hearing birds calls and picking up a bit of information from his narration, uh, I find quite useful. And David Attenborough is always good background music for any conservation work, I think. You spoke about you and Tonya. How did the two of you meet? We actually met at universities. We both studied at the University of Pretoria. We both studied zoology and botany. We met um, actually while windsurfing one weekend. And then I remember going to a bocule shortly afterwards and it wasn't kind of my scene, but there was one person there that I identified. I'd seen her at Brockelsprate Dam where we used to go windsurfing. And I'd also seen her in my class. And I went up and asked her to dance. We had a dance. And we left shortly afterwards. I discovered that uh, bokkiwaling is not for me. And then we got to know each other better and better. We were at Afrikaans University. There weren't many English-speaking people in our class. So we started dating and studying together. And we were very committed to our university courses. We did very well. And the main reason is because we worked exceptionally hard. People were going out on Saturday nights. We were often sitting behind our books or we'd set little exams for each other. So we were very dedicated to our university degrees. As a result, I think we did fairly well. But it was, yeah, through university and then through windsurfing. But it's nice to have a soulmate who has a, a similar interest. We've been married for almost 33 years, and it's been a wonderful journey with Tonya. So, Mark, you obviously are someone who's passionate about conservation, in particular bird conservation. We've got a whole lot of species in South Africa, but is there any species that has a special place in your heart, and why? I like most birds, but I do like vultures in particular. We've been running um, a project on vultures just outside Kimberley for you know, almost three decades one of the longest-running projects in Africa, I suppose. We've monitored a colony of nesting white-backed vultures. And this project, we've partnered with somebody called Angus Anthony, who's retired down to the coast now, but he still continues to manage the project. He's actually been, he stepped in and taken over from where I left off now that I'm busy in my new life and my new career. It's a very important project as we monitor this population of vultures. And vultures are amazing animals. And I really like whiteback vultures, but leopard-faced vultures too. And the reason I'm so interested in these birds, um, and there's a variety of reasons. One is that if they are there, there's a good chance that the health, the environment is healthy. When they're gone, you know, there are problems. There's so much that vultures need. And if they 
don't have those requirements, they're going to disappear. For example, you know, nesting trees. So the whiteback vultures in the Kimberley area nest in camelthorn trees. And if those trees are gone, obviously they've got no nesting space. They need limited disturbance. So if there's a lot of human activity, they will move out of the area. But importantly, you know, poisons are the enemy of vultures because they're being scavengers. And poisons are not only bad for vultures, they're bad for other scavenging animals, both birds and mammals. So having them there tells you that the environment is relatively intact. And vultures are not in great shape, you know, in Africa, elsewhere in the world. And it's a group of birds. We may find that some of the species actually slip to extinction in our lifetimes. But I like other birds too. I've been involved in flamingo work for a long time, a lot of raptor work, been involved with work on blue cranes and Ludwig's bustards. Also started a project on sociable weavers about 30 years ago. And that project continues today. That could be perhaps the longest running project on a passerine in Africa. So, yeah, there's many birds that I like. I mean, I just I enjoy the birds in our garden. We have a relatively diverse number of species in our garden in Johannesburg. And just listening to the Cape Robin chat every morning you know, gives me a, a great thrill. It's amazing when you just slow down and just enjoy the birds that are around. I'm just taking these these walks we allowed to do now. Just had a little bit of time the other day with the greenback Camaroptera. And I mean, it's, it's a common bird in KZN. Any day you take a walk, you're going to hear little clicking of the marbles. And, you know, just to spend time, like we had a great view of it, like a couple of meters away from me. It's interesting, whenever you don't have the camera, the birds come up really close. It's amazing just to spend time with birds. And I think sometimes we, we want to travel to these exotic locations and the birds that are in our gardens and just in the block we get to walk in off are amazing. It's true. And Adam, you know, we, we have some common birds in our garden. And I'm learning to appreciate even the common birds more. You know, watching the Cape Sparrows. The male Cape Sparrow is a beautiful bird. He really is. This morning on our long walk through Parkhurst and Craigle Park, um, Tanya and I were just remarking about what a beautiful call the grey goat bird has and how much it reminds us of the bush. And they're fairly common in Johannesburg now. And other birds too, some of the, even some of the pigeons, um, some of the doves that frequent our suburb are really you know, attractive. We managed to look at them and watch their behaviour and appreciate them. You speak about the grey goa, but uh, it's interesting how things just bring up different memories. When I was growing up, we used to go up to my aunt in Benoni, and I remember my uncle used to feed the birds every morning, he used to give them, give them bread before we knew that bread wasn't what you meant to give the birds. But I always remember the memory of when I was growing up, and I wasn't into birds at this time, was they'd get home, have a loaf of bread, like literally cut the loaf of bread in half, half the loaf would go to the birds, and he'd buy these bags of birdseed and separate the whole the whole bag of birds, he'd literally separate the seeds. What I always remember to hear the grey go away, but I always think back to when I was growing up and going and spending time at my aunt and uncle's house. It's amazing how birds just bring up so many memories. So Mark, as we mentioned earlier on, you are the CEO of BirdLife South Africa, which is one of South Africa's biggest conservation organizations. What were you involved in before you got involved in BirdLife South Africa and how did you end up getting involved with them? So it's interesting, Adam. I've only had two jobs. I'm now 56 years old and I've had two jobs in my life. And the first one, I was the ornithologist, nature conservationist, scientist in the Northern Cape province. That was my first job after completing my postgraduate studies and I was very lucky to get that job. And it was uh, an amazing time that I had working in the Northern Cape, in the Karoo and the Kalahari in particular. And my work was largely monitoring birds. I spent a lot of time out in the field monitoring birds. And it was a very, very uh, special time. 
Tanya was the botanist at the McGregor Museum. So we got to know the birds and the plants very well during that time. And I applied for this job at BirdLife South Africa almost 12 years ago. In fact, I've been in the job for just over 11 years. The position became available. At that stage, I was bumping heads with my previous bosses over flamingos and, and a development which we were concerned about, which would impact on Camphastam and its flamingos. And this position became available and it was in fact Warwick Tarbiton, who's one of the most well-known ornithologists in South Africa. Him and his wife, Michelle, made a special trip to Kimberley to encourage me to apply for the job. And I was hesitant to do so because I always thought I was in my perfect job, spending time in the field and contributing to bird conservation. But Warwick encouraged me to apply and I did apply. I was asked to come up for an interview, to Johannesburg for an interview, and I was hesitant to do so. I called Warwick and he said, go, you don't have to, you don't get the job, you know, so what? If you offered it, you don't have to accept it, but go. So I actually was in the field at that stage, working in the Eastern Karoo, and it was easier for me to get to Johannesburg via Bloemfontein than Kimberley. So I drove to Bloom, caught the plane up, went for an interview. Chairman at that stage, Red Life South Africa, was Peter Sullivan the most senior journalist in South Africa at that stage. He was the head of independent newspapers. And he and a, and a few of the board council interviewed me. And I didn't think the interview had gone particularly well. I think it was actually the first interview that I'd ever done because for my first position, in fact, they didn't interview me. A couple of days later, they phoned me and offered me the position. Again, I was hesitant to, to take the job. And I remember calling Warwick and he had encouraged me to consider taking it. Tanya and I spent quite a long time debating whether it was the right thing to do. You know, moving from Kimberley and Northern Cape, an area we knew well, great place to have spent, you know, 20 years and where we'd raised our children, moving up to Joburg was going to be a really big move. But it was Tanya that said she had a feeling that it was really important for me to accept the position. I wasn't going to accept it unless she was happy with me doing so. I did accept the position, and uh, a week later, things came to a head with the Northern Cape government. The battle me and my boss and one of my colleagues had had with government about this development, which she felt would impact on the flamingos, which was now an important site for the lesser flamingos were breeding on this island we'd created. And I think it was a blessing in disguise that I'd actually accepted this position. And started a, a few months later. And the first few years were quite tough because I commuted between Kimberley and Johannesburg. We wanted our daughter to finish school in Kimberley. And I used to drive up to Johannesburg on Tuesdays and drive back on Friday nights. Did that for four years. In retrospect, I think it probably wasn't the cleverest thing to do. Then Tanya moved up to Joburg and we now work and live together. So it's been a, an interesting journey. But the second job I've ever had, I'm not sure whether I'll even have another job in my life. Time will tell. So we've spoken a lot about BirdLife South Africa. For those who may be listening who don't know, tell us a little bit about this organization and what, what they're involved in. It's a bird conservation organization, but it wasn't always a bird conservation organization. The initial organization was called the South African Ornithologists Union. That was established in 1905, so a very long time ago. That organization became the Southern African Ornithological Society in 1936. So initially, for the first 90 years or so, the organization was about ornithology, about the study of birds. And it was only in 1996 that the name changed to BirdLife South Africa when the organization became one of the 120 or so BirdLife partners around the world. The emphasis of BirdLife, the global partnership, the 120-odd partners, 
is to conserve the world's birds. Now, you've got to remember that you know, because birds are nomadic and because they're migratory, you can't conserve them within one country. You've got to work together to conserve them. So my job to taking up the position in 2008 was to grow the portfolio of conservation positions and to recruit, recruit conservation staff to undertake the very important conservation work that we really are obligated to do. As a BirdLife partner, we sign a partnership agreement and we commit ourselves to undertaking a whole lot of projects which are really defined under the BirdLife Global Strategy under four different focal areas and nine different programs. So BirdLife South Africa's work is to conserve our country's birds. And what are some of the big conservation projects that you as an organization are involved in at the moment? There's a whole range of projects. And it was quite interesting. Last night, we had a Zoom meeting, a, a, a drink with a family in Johannesburg that will want to support our organization. And Annalene Smith-Robinson, who's the head of conservation, and I met with them remotely for an hour and a half. And we decided to just highlight a few of our projects because there are many, many projects we're busy with. But just to, to mention a, a few, one of our flagship projects has been what we call the Albatross Task Force. And there we've been working with fisheries, the trawl fishery and the longline fishery to reduce the bycatch, the inadvertent mortalities of birds during the fishing operations. So we worked very hard at that over the last 15 years. And as an example, in the trawl fishery, which is the hake fishery, we've managed using very simple mitigation measures to reduce the mortalities by about 14,000 dead albatrosses a year to less than 100 dead albatrosses a year. Those low mortality rates have been sustained over the last 15 years. So a very successful um, project that has been. Another seabird project we're busy with is to create a, a new African penguin colony, a mainland colony. The African penguins nest on islands mainly. There's two mainland colonies most people are familiar with. But the problem is that the fish have moved from Cape Town up the coast to the east. And unfortunately, besides the few islands in Algoa Bay next to Port Elizabeth, there are no other nesting places for the African penguin. So we've been working very hard to establish a new African penguin colony at Duhurp Nature Reserve. And there, it took about two years to get all the necessary permissions. Christina Hagen runs this project. We fenced off a peninsula. We have decoy birds that have been placed on this peninsula. We have loudspeakers on the peninsula that play the brain calls of the African penguins. And we're hoping to lure African penguins to the site. So that's another of our important seabird conservation projects. We have a large number of terrestrial bird conservation projects. We're working on black storks. We're very worried what's happening to black storks. We have a project on southern banded snake eagles. Also worried about that species. We've been working for a long time on southern bald ibises. One of our other flagship projects is the work we're doing on the white-winged flufftail. It's critically endangered. We estimate that the, the global population is about 250 individuals. But during the last few years, we've been able to determine that they don't only breed in Ethiopia, at a wetland called Berger. They also breed in South Africa. We found them to be breeding at Middlepin wetland, near Dulstrom. We've also, for the first time, been able to record the call. And we have a whole lot of very sophisticated research which is now underway to understand distribution of the birds, which of these wetland habitats they're inhabiting. We have 80 camera traps that we're moving around between these wetlands. We're also trying to determine population sizes and also the habitat requirements of the white-winged fluffed owl. And the next focal area of this work is going to be to 
protect the, the habitat. So we'll be working with landowners using the habitat management guidelines we developed to protect the important sites where they occur. Besides that, we do habitat conservation work. We have an important bird and biodiversity area program, working with landowners, particularly in the grassland areas and also the Western Cape, the estuaries, to encourage the landowners to protect their properties using something called biodiversity stewardship. And in the last few years, we've contributed more than 150,000 hectares of important sites to the conservation estate in our country. And we do a lot more. We produce a magazine which creates awareness about birds. We have an environmental education program. We've been educating pupils, learners, 55 schools in the greater Vakastrum area. That project's been underway for a long time. So we've been reinforcing the message with those learners over a long time. We also do work with community bird guides. We've trained about 250 community bird guides. These are people working in rural areas who've shown interest in the environment and nature. And more than 100 of them make a living today from bird guiding. So there's a, there's a range of projects, a, a great range of projects. And I've only mentioned a very few of them. It would probably take me a very long time to go through all of the projects. So a diverse number of projects, many of them very successful and really have to take my hat off to our staff who work so hard to ensure that we are making important contributions to the conservation of birds in the habitats. So I read the other day on your Facebook about a project that BirdLife South Africa was involved in, the Camphers Dam Lesser Flamingos project. I saw recently that you said they have just bred again and produced 2,000 chicks, which is really exciting. Tell us about the project and then using this project as an example, give us a glimpse into how a project is both highlighted by the organization and secondly, how you would tackle the project. Because I've been involved with Campus Dance Flamingos since 1991, so a very long time. And I've been monitoring them, counting them for you know, many, many years, 20 years at least. But the Lesser Flamingo, which frequents that site, and it's actually the largest permanent population of Lesser Flamingos in Southern Africa, 80,000 birds most of the time. And the reason they're there is because it's now a perennial wetland. There's an artificial inflow of sewage water treated partially treated, times untreated sewage water from Kimberley. And through the inflow of this water, there's nutrient enrichment and it's benefited the blue-green algae on which the lesser flamingo feeds. So over the years monitoring these birds, I noticed that they built nests, they even laid a few eggs, both species, the lesser and greater flamingos, but they were never successful. And this is because sometimes the water level recedes and the nests are left high and dry, or there's disturbance, human disturbance, disturbance by dogs. And a long time ago, I'd read about proposals to construct Flamingo Islands in South Africa, or Southern Africa. Warwick Tarbotton had proposed a Flamingo Island for Chrissy's Mere in the grasslands, and Rob Simmons had proposed an island for Itosha Pan. And their proposals were based on a very successful island which was built for greater flamingos on the Rhone Delta, Camargue, in southern France. And through my friendship and my engagement with Two brothers in Kimberley, Peter and John Honey, who own a mining company, a diamond mining company. They actually rework the old tailings and rehabilitate the Kimberley area. They're passionate conservationists. And one day I suggested to them that this would be a really nice project to build an island for the flamingos and try and encourage them to breed. So we did that in 2006. And the birds started breeding the following year, 2007. They bred during four consecutive years on the island. First year, they produced 9,000 chicks. The second year, 13,000 chicks. 
fewer in year three and four, partly because the island flooded, really got to do with mismanagement of the sewage water in Kimberley. But during the last three years, they bred on the shoreline, Campus Dam, just a few thousand chicks every year. This was not the biggest breeding event this year of the three. Only 2,000 chicks were produced. And the reason is because it was high rainfall a few months ago and some of the nests flooded. So it's been a, a very successful project. And we've established through this project the only site in South Africa where lesser flamingos have ever bred. It's one of only three sites in Southern Africa where they breed, the other two being in Toshapan, Namibia, Suapan, and Botswana. One of only four sites in Africa where they breed, because they also breed at Lake Natron, northern Tanzania. They do occasionally, apparently, breed in India. We don't have much information about those breeding in, in India. I don't think much monitoring is done there. So it's become an important contribution to the conservation of um, lesser flamingos in Africa. Lesser flamingos are the most abundant flamingo species in the world. They number somewhere between two and five million birds, but yet they're one of the most threatened. This is because they're dependent on so few breeding sites. I have to say, initially, I was quite hesitant about you know, this project because it is a bit of interference, getting them to breed at a site they've never bred at before. But because our environment and our birds and our animals are in such dire straits, many of our species are in trouble, these artificial interventions are becoming increasingly important. I think the penguin colony that I spoke about earlier and, and quite a few other projects that BirdLife South Africa is either undertaking or planning is becoming increasingly important in our efforts to conserve you know, our birds in this very, very changing environment. And obviously, Mark, there's a lot of conservation projects that you could get involved in around birds and this kind of thing. How do you decide which project warrants your attention as an organization? Adam, that's one of the difficult things to do because there is so much to do. I mean, we could be an organization with hundreds of staff and budgets, you know, in the hundreds of millions, and we still wouldn't get to everything that needs to be done. But what we do is we follow a very scientific and objective process in deciding where we focus our attention. You can imagine the resources are, are very limited. But the important bird and biodiversity area work, for example, is 113 IBAs, as we call them, around the country. We hired a statistician, Dr. Leanne Scott, University of Cape Town, to help develop a model which would help us prioritize which IBAs we work in. And through that work, we should really assessed the biodiversity value of the IVAs, but also the threat status. We were able to determine the grasslands and the estuary IVAs were the most important IVAs to be working in. And in terms of species, we have the Red Data Book. So BirdLife South Africa publishes a Red Data Book every 10 years or so. The most recent Red Data Book was published in 2015, and that lists the 132 bird species in our region which are threatened with extinction. So those that are critically endangered endangered, the two most important categories, those are the ones we will focus our attention. And then, of course, there are organizations that are doing work on some of the, those species as well. We will then look at collaborating or assisting those organizations with, with their work. We will certainly not ever replicate any work that's been done well by another organization. And a very good example is the Mabula Ground Hornbill Project. Dr. Lucy Kemp runs that project. We managed to help her secure some funding just in the last few days for that project. I just answered the email a moment ago about a donor that we will be approaching for a collaborative project we'll be doing in Eastern Cape. And then just a question for some people that might ask this, why do birds really matter in terms of conservation? I mean, 
will it really matter if we have less birds? Adam, if they're gone, they're gone. They don't come back. The birds like the dodo from Mauritius and the passenger pigeon, it was very numerous in North America. Once they're gone, you, you never get them back. And they've got a right to be here, just as much as we have a right to be here. But very importantly for us is the birds are a very good indicator of the health of the environment. They are those proverbial canaries in the coal mine. Once they start disappearing, we know that the environment is no longer healthy and potentially we could be next. And of course, then birds fulfill very important ecological roles. You can imagine sunbirds in particular, what important pollinators they are of plants. Owls control rodents. So birds fulfill really important ecological functions. The world would be a very poorer place without them. We've just finished a review. One of our staff, Linda van der Heer, has just finished a review of the importance of vultures in controlling and limiting the spread of disease in Africa. And I think we underestimated the, the value of vultures. And now with the COVID-19 pandemic that we're dealing with, we certainly don't want diseases that could not only affect livestock, game animals, but even humans. And you just mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic that's affecting the world at the moment. What impact has the pandemic had on BirdLife South Africa's conservation projects? We are very fortunate that the pandemic is now during winter. We, we do less field work than we do in the summer months. And, you know, our migrants have left, the birds aren't breeding. That's been one advantage. And we've been working very well remotely. So for just over two months now, our staff have all been working remotely and have been incredibly productive. So I produce a weekly report end of every week, which gets distributed to all of our staff, to our board, to the bird clubs as well, which highlights the, week we've, the work we've done in the preceding week. It's been really impressive to see that the staff have continued their important work. We're also using the time to plan for the future because it's going to become more and more difficult to raise funds in the future. So we're thinking about how we can be clever in our way that we maybe change the tack, look at you know, different options and clever in the way we realign ourselves maybe with government and with businesses' priorities as we have to rebuild the economy. So we spent a lot of time doing that. Some of our projects have unfortunately been affected. We had to apply for special permission last week to go and retrieve 80 camera traps that we have in wetlands in the Dahlstrom area we're using to monitor rails, particularly white-ring flufftail. So it took a while before we went, you know, got the permissions and we went and retrieved these um, camera traps. We were quite worried about the fire season, which could start soon. And those camera traps, which are, imagine 80 camera traps is uh, quite a, an expensive to purchase them, you know, a lot of important equipment. So we've had to retrieve those. A few other projects we're, you know, concerned about. We do have staff that go onto the fishing vessels, work with the, the fishermen to monitor the impact of the operations on seabirds, particularly albatrosses and petrels. We haven't undertaken some of that work during the last two months. And as the restrictions are lifted, we will maybe reconsider spending more time on the fishing vessels. Yeah, so one of the exciting events that is coming up for BirdLife South Africa is Flock to Marion 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about Flock to Marion firstly, and also maybe for those who are listening who have booked to go, view of the COVID-19, give a little bit of an update to where the cruise stands and that kind of thing. Is this our th the third time that we've chartered a cruise ship? We chartered one in 2013 and we went up to Wolfers Bay and back from Cape Town, four nights. 
And in 2017, we went out from Cape Town south to the edge of the continental shelf. Amazing bird watching, particularly in that trip. And they're really important events for BirdLife South Africa because we use them to raise awareness about our work and our organization, and particularly seabirds, important fundraiser for BirdLife South Africa. And cruise ships have never been into the Southern Ocean, particularly around the Prince Edward Islands. Marion Island is one of the two Prince Edward Islands. So we worked with MSC Cruises over a few years to get all the necessary permissions to actually charter, soft charters, they call it, take a cruise ship to Marion Island. It took a long time to get all the permissions. We also worked with government. And finally, we obtained that permission late last year. We opened up the bookings early this year, and we were amazed by the incredible response. Within a few weeks, literally, one and a half thousand people um, booked a berth on the ship, go to Marion Island, not to go onto the island, but to anchor close to the island and Obviously, look at all of those fantastic seabirds that frequent that part of the Southern Ocean. So we had a one and a half thousand passengers booked. Very, very exciting. And unfortunately, that's when COVID-19 happened. Bookings have slowed down, unfortunately. MSC Cruises is not certain about what will happen in future. They're totally dependent on government and government's decisions. We're in regular contact with MSC Cruises and particularly the MD of MSC Cruises, Ross Falk. I talked to him literally every week. He's engaging with the Department of Tourism, Department of Health, and he reckons by the end of June, we should know whether the cruise or the voyage, as we call it, will take place. The ship will leave Durban to seven-night voyage and returning to, to Cape Town. We're hoping it'll take place. Problem is that we still have 400-odd berths to sell, and people are very hesitant to, to make a booking at the moment with the uncertainties around um, COVID-19, and how it'll impact on cruising and and tourism in South Africa. The, the worst case scenario, we believe, is that the cruise will be postponed till later that year. But it will definitely happen one way or another. We've worked too hard to get all the permissions. And we and I think many people, the one and a half thousand people that have booked, are very excited about this very, very unique opportunity to visit the Southern Ocean. So if somebody hasn't booked, what are some of the species that they could expect to see on this cruise? There's a range of species, and particularly albatrosses. I think there's seven species of albatross that we can see. Petrels, storm petrels. There's some really interesting birds which only occur on the Prince Edward Islands, lesser sheath bull being one. And we actually have a list on our website. So we have a dedicated web page on our website where one can go and actually download the list and have a look at those mouth-watering species that one can see during the voyage. One of the other things we have on our website is we've listed all of the guides that will be doing the guiding, the expert seabird guides. We have about 40 guides from a number of two operators who are going to be doing the guiding. And they'll be on deck, uniquely identifiable, and they will guide during all daylight hours. And we've got some of the best guides in the world, in fact, be guiding. With Peter Harrison, the top seabird guide in the world and author of the Bible of Seabirds, he will be joining us again. He was he took, participated in the previous two uh, cruises, two voyages. He's very kindly agreed to come and join us again. He's doing this for free. He's doing this as, in order to support uh, BirdLife South Africa and help us raise funds for our important conservation work. That's oh, really awesome. I personally cannot wait for it. Do local bird clubs still matter? Are they still relevant? And if they do, how does one getting involved in a bird club help with the conservation of birds? Bird clubs matter very, very much. 
We've got 42 bird clubs that are affiliated to BirdLife South Africa, and we value that relationship we have with them. Our staff talk to the bird clubs very regularly. Personally, probably give about seven or eight talks a year. And BirdLife South Africa, as a bird conservation organization, is involved in bird conservation work and doesn't necessarily spend time training budding birders, leading outings, presenting talks and workshops as well. The bird clubs fulfill that role. and We really appreciate that important role that they do fulfill. The bird clubs have been tremendous. The support that they give us is absolutely amazing. During lockdown, they've obviously been disadvantaged and been affected because they aren't able to hold their meetings, aren't able to go on their outings. But we've been presenting talks, remote talks, Zoom talks to bird clubs, and we've done a large number of those during the last two months. We also have the weekly webinars. Many of the bird club members attend those talks. So the bird club members, some of them join with a you know, very limited knowledge of birds. They're always experienced birders in the bird clubs, and those members you know, teach the, the, the junior birders, the inexperienced birders. And it's quite interesting to see how quickly these new birders learn through interactions and through the outings with the more experienced um, bird watchers. Some of them you know, start joining the committees, start leading outings, and get more involved in birds and bird conservation. And one way that the bird club members have become involved in bird conservation is through atlasing. As citizen scientists, they getting, they're involved in the Southern African Bird Atlas Project, using bird lasso in particular to record information about birds. The data that's collected through this project has been invaluable for BirdLife South Africa's work. A whole host of our projects, the revision of the Red Data Book, the revision of the Important Bird and Biodiversity Area Project, a lot of the ecological niche modeling that we're doing for some of our more threatened species would not be possible without the data that bird club members have collected. And bird club members, as they become more knowledgeable about BirdLife South Africa and more supportive of our organization and what we do, many of them donate money to our organization. We have a category of membership, call it that, called Conservation League, and we receive as much from the 161 Conservation League donors as the entire membership. So these Conservation League donors are contributing more money than an average you know, normal membership fee. They're supporting the, the work that we do. We also have people that leave bequests to BirdLife South Africa. They leave money in their will to BirdLife South Africa. And this all gets squirreled away into our endowment in the BirdLife National Trust. And the revenue from this endowment, which is growing quite nicely, Will ultimately support our conservation work. I mean it, we don't have to go around capping and asking for donations. I would ultimately like to see that this endowment that's been established and is growing will be able to support at least our core operations, but also some of our important um, conservation positions. So Mark, we have a lot of international listeners who listen to this podcast. Are they able to contribute to BirdLife South Africa? They are certainly able to, Adam, and we have um, international membership category. We have uh, quite a few hundred members who are based around the world, Europe and, and North America in particular, quite a few in Australia as well. So they can participate in that way. They can obviously donate money towards our organization, support a conservation project. You know, as you know, dollars and pounds translates into many rands. So we do welcome the donations we get in, in dollars and pounds. In fact, we have quite a few very important donors that are based elsewhere in the world. There's a couple in Barbados, 
who give us a lot of money. They gave us a million rand donation this year. So that is certainly most welcome. There's a gentleman who lives in Scotland, in Edinburgh. He made a sizable donation to BirdLife South Africa last week. So there are people around the, the world who do support us. And I think a lot of international birders do visit Africa and do visit South Africa and are interested in, in our countries and our continent's birds. And they see the, the success that BirdLife South Africa is having in its conservation efforts. And they're encouraged then by what we do and, and they support us and support our conservation endeavors. So Mark, if somebody's listening, whether local or international, they say, Yo, we'd like to partner with you guys, like to give to BirdLife South Africa, become a member. How can they contact the organization to make that happen? They can contact me directly if they'd like. My address is ceo at birdlife.org.za. You can email me. We also have a more general email address, info at birdlife.org.za. And then we've got a really good website as well, which includes a lot of information about the conservation work that we do. Website address is birdlife.org.za. You can visit the website and scroll through the pages and get an indication of what we do. And maybe if somebody's interested in one of the projects, you could learn a bit about it, contact the staff member, who manages that project, the name and contact details is on the website, and then they could uh, inquire about the work and we'd be happy to send them more information. And what we'll do, we'll put the links in, in the comments section of this podcast, so anyone wants more information, just click on those links and you can connect with BirdLife South Africa. So just two more questions before you go, Mark. I look with envy at some of the places that you get to visit as a birder. In terms of South Africa, which is your favorite birding location? Without doubt, the low felt. We've been very fortunate to visit there on a regular basis over the last 40 years. Unfortunately, the property that the family used to own uh, has now been sold. And I'm longing for the low felt at the moment. And uh, Tanya and I speak about it often. In fact, this morning we were speaking about it. I think the first thing we'll do when we come out of lockdown is try and get there. And just to walk around, you know, the felt would be really special. So I like, you know, I like the bush. We enjoy an environment which has lots of trees and shrubs and has a, a diversity of birds. But there's so many other parts of South Africa that, that I enjoy visiting. The Kalahari is very special. I spent a lot of time working in the Kalahari. I know the Kalahari fairly well. I know the birds fairly well. And in northern Natal, we've been running trips to Zamanga Game Reserve in northern KwaZulu-Natal during the last few years. These have been quite successful as a fundraiser for BirdLife South Africa. There are some unique birds up in Zululand which one doesn't necessarily see elsewhere in the country. So there's, you know, there's just so many great places. I mean, the grasslands as well are very special. We've been spending a bit of time in the Fainbos lately, seeing Cape sugarbirds and orange-breasted sunbirds and some of the other Fainbos endemics are also special. But, but if I have my way, if uh, we come out of lockdown, I can go anywhere for a week, it'll be to the Lowfelt. To go and walk around somewhere in the areas adjacent to Kruger National Park could be first prize for me. So just last question, what practical tips would you give to listeners as to how they can improve their birding? Well, join a bird club. I think if people are very keen to learn, there's a number of bird clubs around the country, attend the outings, latch on to somebody who's clearly got more experience than you, learn from them, you know, become a member of BirdLife South Africa, receive our magazine, which is published every two months. There's a lot of information in the magazine which would be of interest to a budding birdwatcher and even an experienced birdwatcher then you know, buy and devour all the information in bird books you know, we've got incredible field guides we've got better field guides than literally any other place on earth 
that's one way in which you can learn. I think listening to bird calls as well. There's many ways in which one can get the access to bird calls these, these days. I have Robert's Multimedia on my laptop, and I often just you know listen to the call. I have it on my phone as well, and so yeah, get to know the calls. And then you know while out there, just observe the birds very carefully. Maybe even take some notes when you see a bird. Don't be shy to ask if you don't know which species it is. And also, we have a very active Facebook group and a, and a Facebook page. But our Facebook group has about 40,000 members. It is incredibly active. There are dozens and dozens, if not at times, hundreds of messages posted every day. People like sharing their photos of the birds they've seen, the behavior that they've observed. And some people post pictures of birds that they're uncertain about or they you know, saw some interesting behavior and they don't understand why the bird was doing it. And people are always willing to, to answer those questions. So that's just some of the ways that uh, one can get to know a bit more about birds. So Mark, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I really encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to connect with BirdLife South Africa, find out more about this organization. They really, really are doing amazing work. I think for birders, if we don't look after the birds, we're not going to be able to bird in the long run anyway. So just thanks, Mark, for being on the show. I really do appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Adam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Nice to chat. Thanks, Mark, and be sure to check out all the information in the comments section of this podcast about BirdLife South Africa and how you can support them. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Birding Life Podcast. I said at the beginning that I would tell you how you can win a copy of Fancy's Kids Book, a full field guide for kids. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is the last week that this competition is running. Firstly, you need to subscribe to the Birding Life SoundCloud account. And secondly, follow the Birding Life on Facebook. And then lastly, share the advert advertising this episode on Facebook as many times as possible. Remember that each share gives you one entry into the draw. Make sure that your privacy settings are in public so that we can see that you have shared the post. Entries close next week, Monday. That's Monday, the 25th of May. And the book will be posted as soon as postal services allow. Once again, thanks for listening. And until next time, be blessed and happy birding.